Okay, welcome back to Axapod, everybody. Welcome Chris Moore from Paulo Ibot. Chris is the head of things over there at Ibot in London. Chris, I want to kick it off by asking you what everybody's wondering right now. What is going on with European football and the Super League? Uh (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a a classic case of greed, right? Yeah, Um, it's it's been pretty embarrassing. Luckily, my football team isn't even in the Premier League, so my team is Swansea, so... We're a far cry from the Super League, but it's it's just a classic greed thing, right? This isn't for the fans. This is for the owners. And the football is a sport for the fans, as, as should every sport be. So there's a lot of you know upset people that you know, spend a lot of their hard-earned money on watching and supporting their team, and this is not what they want. So hopefully we've seen the, the end of that brief yes. saga. I saw there were some some protests today or yesterday, but outside yeah, the... it was for the Man United game, and there's been more protests and just upset fans, and you can understand why. Yeah, maybe it's a, a little bit refreshing to see somebody protesting over a sport instead of more dangerous activities. But yeah, it's it's important nonetheless. But maybe a little just different change in the uh, the, the protesting. That's, that's yeah. All. Well, I live in well, Paris in France, so I'm quite used to protests here. Right. That makes sense. And I'm in Minneapolis, so we're in the revolutionary phase over here, too. Well, thanks for being on the pod. We've been, well, talking, we've been talking about doing this for a long time, and I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, you mentioned you're in Paris, so why don't we kick it off with, you know, how is COVID-19 affected yourself over the last 12 to 14 months or whatever it's been? I'm lucky to work for a company in Apollo and we have our iBot division, which is focused on digital sharing economy type companies, new mobility companies. I like to think of it as a home for, for new and emerging risk. And, you know, Apollo supported me in, in my desire to, to follow my wife's career to Paris. My wife works for a cosmetics company here in, in, in Paris for L'Oreal and had career aspirations to work at the headquarters to, to push on with her career. And luckily for me, my job can be almost territory agnostic. A lot of the work I was doing in the United States anyway, and, and relatively specialist. And so I didn't really need to be sat in London to do that business. And a lot of the work I do involves business travel, or, or it did pre-COVID. And so Apollo were very supportive of me moving my family to Paris and, and working for, from there. Uh, and the team that I have around me are, are great. So the decision was made pre-COVID and now post-COVID, it's almost like the decision was a no-brainer because everyone has proved the concept that you can work remotely. But it, the timing for me, I've been lucky with COVID just because it hasn't been such a, a shock to the system. And I would have probably been doing a lot of commuting between London and Paris, but I haven't had to do that. So when we look at the silver linings, I've been able to, to spend a huge amount of time with my family that I otherwise wouldn't have. But it's been tough seeing a lot of my clients go through some tough times during COVID, especially the sharing economy, sharing assets during a, a pandemic. I don't know right. how, it's tough, right? But I yes. think they're coming out the other end and the future looks very strong for, for the sharing economy. Yeah, COVID seems to have accelerated, particularly in this industry, a lot of futuristic foresight in what people are thinking about. And I think the shared economy will probably be a big beneficiary of all of that. Yeah. But everybody, yeah, everybody's had to go through some times here over the past year to maybe acclimate a little bit better. Lloyd's as a whole, obviously, is a very historically a very kind of belly to belly business, it has a high uh, value on personal relationships and and everything else. How how do you think Lloyd's and Apollo 
transition through this process where we're not haven't been seeing people face to face. I think Lloyd's has actually done done really well. I think for the whole insurance industry and maybe all industries, right? COVID has been that big reset button where people have had the time to reflect on not just how they do their business in terms of a process, but the actual products they're selling and and how the world is susceptible to to a massive change. I think with Lloyd's and and with Apollo, absolutely, it's a people business. The whole of insurance is, we know that it's very strong relationships. Anytime you're selling an intangible product, like a a promise, which is effectively what we're selling, the product is only as strong as that promise. And I think that's where the relationships are so important. I think it's allowed us to to rethink the way we do things. So do you have to have as much face-to-face interaction? I think I can count on, dare I say it, one hand, not even two hands, how many successful video conferences I had had pre-COVID with my clients. Right, And the effect of that was I would be meeting clients maybe once a year, maybe twice a year if there's a really big client and having a dialogue. And you wouldn't speak more frequently than that because you're like, oh, let's wait until we meet face-to-face. Let's wait till we meet at a RIMS conference or let's wait till your next trip to London or the next time I'm in San Francisco or or, or wherever they're based. And it just meant less less client contact. And and actually, it meant our product wasn't evolving as quickly as it had to because we just weren't up to speed with how dynamically our clients were evolving. Now, during, during COVID, it's shown us how, how successful things like Zoom and MS Teams and, and Hangouts can be. We're speaking to our clients more so now than we've ever done before. I'd say the relationships that we've built are, are stronger than they've ever been before. And that's happened because the pandemic made us do that. Yeah. Now we've, we've seen the benefits of this. So I think it's, our transition has, has been, it's allowed us to, to stick to what culture I thought we had pretty well at Lloyd's and, and Apollo, which is client first. We were always that open door to say, look, present your risk, let's speak, let's be innovative, let's create manuscript and tailor-made solutions. Now, because we've got that more access to the clients, I think we can do that to another level. If we can stick to that culture of client first, then actually we can make this into a real positive and, like I say, strengthen relationships, not hinder them. Yeah. And on that note, I guess, you know, as we are exiting, hopefully, this pandemic, yes. uh, not good one. I've got my two yes. shots now. I know things yeah. are a little slower in uh, in Paris, but yes. do you think it'll go? Do you think it'll revert back a little bit to the way it used to be, where you're doing more in person, or do you think this will kind of be a new norm for you, and you'll be traveling less or a hybrid? I think there will always be a time for the face to face, but I think there's an opportunity for us here from an ESG perspective, specifically the environmental impacts to travel less. It will undoubtedly go down. That will have knock-on effects of reducing expense ratios that I think all of us want to achieve and our clients want us to achieve. But there will always, for me, be the time and a place of face-to-face. I think naturally it will reduce because of technology enables us to connect on a different basis. I think we would be missing a real opportunity if we didn't embrace that. Of course, it's nice to travel in certain aspects, but there's obvious benefits for traveling less. Yeah. It can't be ignored. You know, the underwriting room, so to speak, at Lloyd's, how do you see that transitioning here? Has it, has it been closed this whole time or what has been the status of that? There's been some closures when enforced by governmental reasons. And then there's been, you know, they've, they've managed to transition to having reduced numbers 
And so they've rather than all classes and all underwriters sitting there in any one day. They've had you know, aviation on a Monday, casualty on a Tuesday, property on a Wednesday. So there's been a little bit okay. more control over the amount of people in the building. Do I see the underwriting room changing? Absolutely. Lloyd's already talked about a virtual room, which gives more access to more people. So you can actually have US brokers, clients accessing the, you know, that hive of innovation, that hive of activity from an insurance perspective. But when you think about the physical room, you know, for me, the future is underpinned by data. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone listening to this. And certainly right. in the sharing economy, our mission is to, to be as, as making as many data-driven underwriting decisions as we can. I can't make an, an underwriting decision based off a sharing economy of client, as you full well know, at the box immediately, because the right. data that I have is so rich. The only way I'd yeah. make that decision is if I ignored that data. Previously, when I used to sit in, in the box, and we were working on things that didn't have as much data at our disposal, right? So it was warranted. I'm not saying this is true for every line of business, but certainly for what I do today, I don't need an underwriting assistant next to me to, to help with administration. The person I need next to me is a data scientist or an actuary, and I probably yeah. need more than, more than one. And, and that's the issue. And the challenge for brokers is that actually clients want to be far more engaged in the discussion as well. You know, yeah. It used to be a broker would do so much, right? They would, would build the submission. They would you know, craft a strategy of broking and the client might do an hour presentation to an insurer, but really the broker was, you know, driving that that insurance placement. I still think that is the case for, for some, but for much more, the client is more involved than they ever used to be. And I think that's challenging a broker to be have different skill sets. But I think it's a much more collaborative process now than just broker, underwriter, decision made, policy bound. I think yeah. those days are numbered. I would agree that it is definitely changing. I think it's getting more niche. I think you know brokers have to be technicians more so than they've ever had to be in the past. I think it's changing for the better. I mean, I think there's always going to be a big role for brokers and advocacy and everything else. But obviously, it's changing for sure. And I'm sure you see that more than anybody just being in you know, the type of risk that you're writing leapfrogging here a little bit what is your overall view of kind of the casualty marketplace right now focused within apollo but more broadly too i mean obviously there's a lot going on covid maybe i don't, I don't know how big of a role that's played in, in losses but just social inflation larger verdicts new industries that you're writing that don't have the data maybe to support knowing or being able to look too far back i mean how do you see all this collectively from your lens yeah, I, th I think it's a really tough market at the moment. I think tough for a number of reasons, and, and a lot of them you touched on there. I think social inflation trends can't be ignored. Some of the nuclear verdicts are are unfathomable, right? And incredible, some of the verdicts. And you think about certain sizes of those vertically through a tower and some of the rates that were previously being deployed by casualty markets, you know, just truly unsustainable and not by a factor of, 10, 15, 20%, you're talking multiples because the return periods now are on, on a different scale. If those verdicts exist and could be increasing and becoming increasingly frequent, I think the plaintiff's bar has been incredibly innovative. I hate to compliment them, but you know some of the reptilian theory they've been using, actually seeing plaintiff's bar, this for me is the most worrying thing about the, the US jurisdiction. Having plaintiff's bars have forums and groups where they are discussing and sharing ways that they have been successful in establishing a nuclear verdict because it's good for business. Because the more nuclear verdicts, the more normal it becomes. The ease of getting another one 
becomes that's what scares me. And I'm proud to see some of my clients actually fight back and say, well, we need to do the similar thing on the defense side. Yes, there's, le- there's more rules and what we can share and you know, it has to be in a public domain, but I'm now seeing coalitions form amongst certain of our clients where they say, well, we were successful in defending this or combating this nuclear verdict by doing the following, but it's undeniable that that's there. I think COVID-19 is, is going to actually be difficult for all parties because you've got a blip now. Whereas you had a clear trend, now there is, there is a clear blip in that trend to say, well, is COVID-19 showing an anomaly in that trend? And how do you project that? And that's further uncertainty is, is going to cause pain. When I take it into the sharing economy setting and an example of how COVID-19 can impact you, you know, everything we do within, within the iBot team, which is you know, looking at new mobility, is usage-based. I'm a, I'm a massive believer in usage-based insurance. And I think COVID-19 is a, an example of why that's important because, you know, if you take auto insurance, my car was idle on my driveway for a long, long time, right. nowhere near the miles that my personal lines insure envisaged. So I over, way overpaid for insurance. And I felt like my insurance product you know, let me down, for, for, for right. lack of a better phrase. So if it was usage-based and it was based on how much I used it, it wouldn't have been that. For me, it's, it benefits all parties. Insurers get the right rate because they get a price for the accurate exposure and the consumer only pays for what they actually use. So for me, it's a fairer product that has to be the future. When we did a usage-based product, what hurt us from a COVID-19 perspective was the actual exposure itself completely changed. So on a per mile basis, because there was so much less traffic on the roads, we were seeing massive increased speeds of the people that were driving. And those increased speeds meant increase of frequency, particularly frequency of severity incidents. So we our loss costs shot up during COVID. Things like that is, is very difficult to, to rate for, very difficult to predict. And so now I've got this trend for COVID-19 and I have to sort of what try to eliminate that trend then reset the trend on other years. So it is going to make it more challenging on a pricing perspective. And dare I say it, the insurance industry is going to be talking about this pandemic for years to come because it'll have lasting effects. Until it's off your 10-year loss run, I'm afraid this is going to be a a sore subject. (laughs) Do you think that's particularly specific to auto risk? Or I mean, would you even extend that over to, you know, micromobility and delivery and, you know, things like that? I definitely think it's more prevalent in auto because of the impacts I just talked about. I think you'll also see impacts in sort of general casualty type risks. So let's take a sharing economy like task sharing or anything linked to travel. So if you take home sharing and and, and platforms Mm -hmm. like that, they will have been impacted by COVID-19, not not just to mention huge volume reductions. What I mean is specific shifts in their exposures on on a a sort of individual unit basis. So like I said, that single mile driven in COVID is is a mile driven a lot faster, which is a lot riskier. That's the impact on auto. But when you take home sharing, previously home sharing is all about travel. And so if I insured a pure US operation for home sharing. I'm expecting a mixture of US travelers, US-based travelers, and international-based travelers. And I know whether this is right or wrong, this is just a fact, defending a, a, a US plaintiff is a lot harder than an international plaintiff for most, if not all, territories. Where you take COVID now, every single night stay was by a US citizen because there's nobody traveling. So right. people were still using yeah, a home-based sure. sharing platform but all, all of a sudden, I got US-based citizens. If it was a previously a 50-50 split to 100% split, 
it's not outrageous to think my loss cost could have doubled. Um, sure, and that's sure. the sort of impact that impossible to predict for, but the sort of impact that is always going to mean there's an outlier when you have the asterisk for those yeah. COVID years. Yeah. Because Americans are more expensive. Because Unfortunately so, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. In the healthcare um, system, litigious yeah. system, number of things, right? Backing up a second, when you look at nuclear verdicts and social inflation, I mean, obviously, social inflation implied within social inflation is it's something that's happening over time. But then we have nuclear verdicts that have maybe gone up at a exponential rate. Is there any sort of anecdotal legitimate yeah. data behind why we're seeing more nuclear verdicts? I was a risk manager for you know a ladder company for 10 years and probably sat through 50 trials. You know, every jury is different, you know, but we didn't see these bigger trends. You know, we saw cases, you know, $700,000 victories, a million dollar victories, that sort of thing. But now these these numbers seem to have overnight doubled, tripled, yeah. you know, 20 million, $100 million verdicts. It's just, yeah, I'm just wondering what the, what the data behind it says. It, it varies by state. And I'm, and I'm certainly not a a lawyer right so i'm giving you an underwriter's view here so obviously there's there's things that vary by state and some of that is political some of it is is linked to the economy of that of that state and 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 pay gaps and and disparity of wealth within certain states some of it is to do with certain brands so from an from social inflation can be largely aimed at your big humongous companies with huge revenues right it's they're a bigger target and so when you look at certain segments you look at which industries have been really targeted. And some of that is, like I say, to do with massive amounts of, of income and large balance sheets. Chemicals, pharmaceuticals have clearly been big targets for, for huge, huge verdicts. But then other areas has been to do with defenses. So who are a, an easy target, not just a, a big target. And you look at the, the, the US trucking industry, and, and that's been a huge target for nuclear verdicts. Why? Because there's been a lack of digitalization, yeah. probably caused by strong union trade bodies. But when you're a, a plaintiff's lawyer and you're, you're up against a company that is trying to defend themselves with paper logbooks, it's not a tough target. Plaintiff puts a case together and, and there's going to be gaping holes in that defense. And that allows you to say, you know, it was obvious this person was not filling out the logbooks correctly. You know, this person has driven more than their permitted hours. This is, you know, they shouldn't, there's classic failings in the risk controls. And this has caused a terrible injury and it could have been avoided. You know, use this horrible reptilian theory to, to get these nuclear verdicts. So there's a lot of factors there that are contributing to this. I think what stops it is having strong defenses. And when I think about the sharing economy, I've, I've had lots of conversations with with pricing actuaries and what sort of social inflation targets are you know are aimed at the sharing economy. I think the one thing the sharing economy does have in its favour is a digital sort of footprint of exactly what those exposures are and who those people are, and they're monitoring things. And some are using telematics and, yeah. and involving risk controls. Some of them are going to be big targets because they've gone through IPOs and they're worth a, a huge amount of money. But if they can get those defenses right, and there's some incredibly talented people that work in those legal teams of those companies, they can buck the trend and, and defend those nuclear verdicts. And that's something we speak about like, an awful lot during the underwriting process. You know, For us, yes, we're underwriters. And of course, we are heavily focused on risk transfer. 
but we think about the whole spectrum of risk management, you know, risk control, risk avoidance. It's, yeah. you know, risk identification and social inflation is definitely a key conversation we're having. I do a lot of work in the hunting and outdoor space too. I like to, you know. I saw you did your first business trip recently. Yeah. Very, yeah, very yeah, jealous. Yeah. So I went to, I went to Flo- Destin, Florida, where they have a much different view on this whole thing than, than Minneapolis. I can tell you that. <laughs> but, but anyways, one of the interests, I, I do a lot of work with tree stand manufacturers, deer stands. You know, it's a very small industry. It probably does a total of, I don't know, $150 million in sales, right? So, but they're growing like crazy and hunting and everything else during the pandemic has become a huge social distancing technique. But what's really interesting about that industry is how homogeneous it is despite fierce competition among you know my clients and among the industry they share a lot of resources i work with a lot of them obviously uh, they have a, a, a law firm that works with probably 95% of them and then defends them on a national basis which i i thought to be really interesting just given how much lawyers know how much intellectual property the knowledge they have with regard to the clients but yet they're still sharing them as a conjoined resource for where they become like this repository of information and they don't have to recreate the wheel every time that one of them gets a new lawsuit because they know the defenses they're right there they can easily and anecdotally you know refer to other cases and that sort of thing and it's something similar that i did in the in the latter industry we didn't share like we were the i think we're the one of the first to do this but we had a national council get appointed to all these cases via pro hoc, you know, in federal court in the United States. And we'd have local counsel too, because we had to, but we had this one firm and it turned out to be much less expensive for us to do it this way, where they would sit on the first chair in all of these trials that we had based on the newness and the, the nicheness of this industry. If something like that might be something to consider in the future of just, you know, talking globally about how we can consolidate some of these efforts. I guess there's a lot there that we could dive into. I think the overall chance is absolutely there's huge amount of benefits. And like I said, there are certain companies coming together and saying, hey, it makes sense for us to rally together, share resources or share insights. Like I said, that coalition for defending claims is one example of that. And rest assured, they all understand it doesn't benefit any of them for one of them to get a nuclear verdict because that sets the president for the next case, regardless of who it's against. So right. they're all vested in, you know, making sure that they're not the subject, the next industry to be the big target for plaintiffs' lawyers. But I think that there's all, they're fiercely competitive. We know that, yes. right? Yes. I think yeah. if anything, there is a, a demonstration that this could be a shift and there could be more of that. I think it's Lyft and Uber's recent announcement, you know, probably the most fierce competition you'll see in, in, right. in the industry segment, Lyft and Uber. But, you know, they've come together to say they will actually share now information on certain drivers that have potentially committed a, a sexual assault in one of their vehicles. It's a step forward. It's maybe scratching the service and there's more that can be done. But I think it's a movement in the right direction, right? It's safety across more than just one platform. It's safety improvements for the industry. So I yeah. definitely think there's more to do that. And micromobility is another space that that could be expanded out even further, not just defense strategies or sharing information on what's been successful in certain scenarios like that, but also about you know, the micromobility space, more than probably anything that I've seen recently, is at the mercy of this 
hugely shaping an insurance regulation by city level basis. And yeah. you know, constantly we we're trying to talk to different cities and talk to different operators to say, well, this city's asking for this type of insurance, or this city's considering this type of insurance, this limit, that limit, this coverage, this coverage. You know, right. it's it's never ending. I yeah. think there's opportunities for micromobility companies to potentially come together and say, why don't we present a united front? Let's get all of these regulators in a room. Let's get our insurers, our, our insurance intermediaries and say, hey, why don't we have a, an old school fashioned workshop to say, what are we worried about? What are the concerns? Yeah. What's possible from the insurance industry? What's possible from our unit economics to make sense that this is a viable, sustainable business? Because the public have spoken. The public like this form of modality, right? It's right. an open air, private form of transportation and it's green. I'm a big believer in micromobility, as you know. There is an opportunity here to maybe streamline that process and have a, a coalition to say, right, this is what we think the right insurance solution is across all cities within the United States. I don't know if that'll happen because there is certainly some views that insurance can be a unique selling point or a differentiator. Yeah. But it's certainly a conversation that needs to happen. Yeah. I've just recently seen more. I'd say collaboration when it comes to cities reaching out and asking us along with the clients, you know, what, what our thoughts are on insurance providers, insurance limits, that sort of thing. So it seems like they're, you know, they're starting to get that, but I agree it, there's a long way to go and some sort of collaborative lobbying effort or, or whatever it might be. It seems, seems inevitable at some point, but because obviously uh, ride sharing have theirs, right? They have their TNC right. regulation. Starting in California, it is in most states now, have their own form of, of that regulation, mostly following suit of California. I could see you know, that we have Prop 22, which I suspect other states will, will do something similar. I don't think it's unfeasible to think that maybe even the delivery sector or, or the micromobility sector might go in a similar vein to that. Seems like it's well-deserving of some focus, so that's good. There's a, obviously a lot happening as we talk about micromobility and, and sharing economy with respect to wheeled vehicles and whatever it might be. How do you see data? Obviously, you, you, you talked about it earlier, data. You know, you'd rather have a data scientist or an actuary sitting next to you than an underwriting yeah. assistant when it comes to figuring out pricing on programs and things like that. Given the newness of the data, I mean, how are you finding ways to discover the data, to figure out what, what it means and, and how it's going to have some sort of influence later on on claims activity and predictive modeling and that sort of stuff? Whenever we're talking about insuring somebody, we normally start with a discussion on data and we'll talk to them about what data they're recording. We'll talk to them and sometimes educate or sometimes affirm, you know, this is the data that we think moves the needle from an insurance cost perspective. Some of the data they'll be recording will be to, you know, to make other decisions within their business, whether a market is good or not, whether a market is profitable or not. We're, we're looking at things purely from a risk perspective in, in most cases. And so we'll share notes on what that data looks like. And then we normally establish you know, a sort of memorandum of understanding this is the data we're going to share on a, on, a, on a regular cadence. And we're going to use that to keep the dialogue going about, you know, is risk moving in the right way? And that way, we can almost give them health status reports on a timely basis. I think the times of having a policy put in place for 12 months, and you're only speaking to your, your client when the renewal comes around in 12 months' time, it is gone. You know, risks yeah. are too dynamic. They're too complex. You probably need to be speaking at a minimum every quarter with with most of our insureds. Obviously, smaller companies that are, that are piloting less so. But you know, for, for your larger clients, definitely you want to be speaking quarterly. You want to be making sure that the vision and the, the road that they're on fits with what the view of the insurer is. So there's a long term partnership. But 
for me, it shouldn't be a case of I'll just share data, you take that data, crunch it, and say yes, we'll insure right. you, and here's the price. There needs to be a massive transparency there, and 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 we need to sort of peel back that layer of of secrecy of our risk models and just say, look, this is what moves the models. These are how the models work. Right. And, and that can be uncomfortable for insurers because we've never really given our clients that amount of transparency. You know, we've never told our clients what sort of target loss ratio we need to make it sustainable for our capital base. But more right. so, as you deal with more complicated insureds that are spending massive amounts of insurance for large amounts of the share and economy and mobility companies is the biggest cost to their balance sheet. They want to know where do I need to be that right. I'm not subject to this huge price increase next year? What what sort of loss ratio do I need to hit that this is sustainable and core business for you? So all of a sudden, the narrative is a bit different, but we have to go a bit more granular. We can't continue to ignore the data. And so when you look at what we're modeling on in a commercial auto setting, you know, you're probably looking at number of vehicles, utilization of vehicle, but on a high average per vehicle basis. A fairly granular view on where the exposures are. You may go down as to state, or if you want to go more sophisticated, you might go to zip code. But you're not looking at the individual roads they're driving on. Uh, you probably look at the average age of the driver, and then you probably look at their loss experience. That's probably what you're doing. For us, you know, if I take a delivery company, I want to know, hey, if you've got telematics on the vehicle, I want to see the driving behaviors. I want to risk score those drivers. I want to see if they're driving more at night because we know night is riskier in the daytime. I want to know exactly the roads. Are they traveling on highways uh, that are really risky roads? Or are they traveling on roads that are really safe for roads? And can I get a risk score based on the routes that they're taking? In addition to, to their age, I want to know their driver tenure, their specific driver experience on this delivery platform. So I want to build all those new rating factors and, and build that into the model because that's a more reflective, accurate reflection of what the risk is. And I can price it better and more sustainable on that basis. But then it's about not having the model sit within my business. It's actually transitioning to whether the model sits in my client's business. So imagine a world where I actually give them my rating model. And I say to them that now you can dynamically price your business. So today, if I insured a delivery company, I'm probably saying the rate is a dollar per delivery. But actually, 90% of the deliveries could actually be a 50% of that. I could only need 50 cents to insure those deliveries. And then 10% of the deliveries, I actually need $10. So in my new model, I've empowered the client to say, hey, I'm actually going to remove that 10%. And now I've just halved my insurance costs by focusing on the best deliveries. Or you have it. Delivery A, somebody goes onto the app and says, right, I want this food from this restaurant and I live here. That sends the risk details from the platform's app to the rating engine that I've given them. That quickly calculates a rate for that delivery, sends it straight back to the platform's app, and that is just loaded in to the platform, passed on to the customer. In that case, you're dynamically pricing specifically to that delivery. And if... The platform was in growth mode. They can obviously choose to ignore what that is and price it differently and running a loss on their balance sheet because they're making money on other parts of their business. Or they just pass on that dynamic pricing. And some of those deliveries then, for those higher risk deliveries, the consumer will decide. But ultimately, no delivery platform wants to deliver something that they lose money on. Right. That's not good business. No. So if I give you the insights to show you specifically the risk for this delivery is X, Pass it on to consumer. If they want to pay a higher rate for this risky delivery at this time of day on these roads and this restaurant, you know, now it's it's that choice. But that takes a massive partnership on data that needs to be built in from an engineering perspective. So, 
you know, I'm, I'm not saying that happens overnight, but that's certainly my vision of the future. And we're committed to that and we're building, you know, the sort of data and infrastructure we need at Apollo to, to deliver that type of product for our consumer. Where do you think insure tech and APIs, data being positioned on the hardware, the software, bringing them right to your doorstep from an underwriting standpoint. How do you see that part of the insurance industry evolving here in the next future months and years? InsurTech definitely has a huge role to play in the transformation and evolution of our business. I know a lot of people use the word disruptive or disrupt the, the industry. I don't really like the disrupt sort of phrase. I think it's evolved and we've always evolved. I think it's sometimes hard to to evolve from within. And in certain cases, I've met insurtechs that are offering fantastic products that, that we would love. You know, we're, we know our strengths and we know our weaknesses by certainly partnerships. And that's, we, we're a partnership model, partnership with our insurers, partnership with our clients, partnership with all stakeholders, right? So if there's insurtech partnerships that sort of take our products to the next level or, or improve our efficiencies internally, we are all open for those partnerships. But sometimes I think that there can be examples of naivety on some insure techs that think that they can come into an right. insurance industry and, oh, the insurance is slow and it's cumbersome. We've got this amazing way to disrupt it. And they probably don't realize how heavily regulated we are as an industry, how much compliance work goes in, in launches products. And that's probably the biggest downfall of some insure techs that I see. But I actually see you know, insure techs into two different buckets, right? You've got insure techs on the product side really interesting new products, whether it's parametric-based or, or whatever it is, really interesting. And I think we're certainly exploring partnering with some of those because they're cool products and we want to support them. And then you've got some more on the, the efficiency side. And then again, we partner with some of them and, and they're pretty interesting. I think what you will eventually see with, with the VCs at the moment and some of the valuations for insurtechs, which are incredible, I think you will see more people come in. You know, I've heard people talk about dot-com bubbles. I don't think it's that at all. I think there's there's a lot of value in what some of these insurtechs are building. But I do think that there will be companies, maybe even share an economy marketplace companies that will say, wait a minute, these all of a sudden insurance looks like a, a pretty good industry for me to take a bigger play in. If they're the sort of returns I could get for being an insurtech, well, maybe I want to set up my insurtech card. So could I see, you know, maybe a, a home sharing platform saying, well, let's set up an insure tech to offer home insurance. We've already got a huge network of people that deal with us right. on a daily basis right. with their home. Yeah. I can access the customer at a much cheaper rate than maybe a true insure tech that, that doesn't have the platform I have. Or maybe you'll see a big rideshare platform or a big delivery platform launch alongside their business and insure tech, an insure tech vehicle that can provide tailor-made insurance for their drivers. I think, and I've said this pretty publicly, for me, when I look at sharing economy marketplace risk, they could be our new next wave of super MGAs, right? A new distribution model for insurance. Whether you want to call yeah. that insure tech, because technically it's tech in insurance, right. <laughs> I, right. I see it as just new forms of distribution. And yeah, we're certainly embracing that um, within Lloyd's and certainly within Apollo. Tesla, I guess, is a good example of a company that is taking a integrated approach to, you know, insurance. Yeah. You know, uh, looking at yeah. ways to, to offer it because they have the data and they have the customer base and distribution model. So uh, Elon's quote is like my kind of mission statement to sort of keep going when I'm sort of sometimes on a, on a low. You know, I think Elon <laughs> Musk said, "If the insurance industry continues to ignore 
the advancements in our safety and, our, and the changes to our risk, then we'll insource it, which is exactly what he's doing. Effectively, right. what he's saying is, you're ignoring all my data with regards to autonomous driving, autonomous mode, or safety features, etc. You're not factoring that into the insurance you provide to Tesla customers. It's easier for me. I have the capital. I can build partnerships with fronting companies. I'll build the insurance company then, rather than beholden to you. And do I believe in that in that strategy? I think it's a very different capital model for insurance. Right. He will learn right. than, than what he's currently doing. He may not get the returns that he gets on other parts of his business. So I don't think everyone is going to go down that route, but certainly if we do not open our doors to changing the way that we approach certain industries, I do think our insurance could become our biggest competitors. So I'd see yeah. it as a bit of a warning shot. We aren't, just because we're insurers operating in the industry today, it's not a closed club. Right. Anyone can join the insurance industry and do it differently, which insurtechs, some of the, the more famous ones have done already. If we're providing innovative products, we're putting our client first. There's no longer a need for Tesla to do that. I think Tesla right. is saying nobody is putting us first. No, absolutely. A couple more things to hit on, and then I'll let you go here. I appreciate yeah, sure. the conversation. Bitcoin and blockchain is a big source of news and conversation lately. Where, if at all, do you see blockchain playing a role in the insurance industry? Maybe less so from a payment perspective, but, but more just from a semantically getting customers maybe what they need or, or getting data in a, you know, recorded in a different manner. I mean, is it, do, you, do you think that's going to play a role more? I think there's some interesting things that can be done with blockchain. Where I'm seeing it at the moment is it's just that ability to share information that others in, in, through other mediums aren't willing to share. I think what's really interesting when you look at why the sharing economy could be successful, right, it's because there's been a generational shift away from ownership to, to just usage. And so when you look at someone then, you know, in my personal motor sort of perspective, personal car insurance, you normally own a car and you have a track record of your history of insur insurance with that car. When you're using something on a dynamic basis, especially when the insurance is embedded in that usage, right? So with home sharing platforms, normally the insurance is included in the cost for the night, right? Or when you, you know, lease a car from a rental car company, the insurance is embedded. And yes, you can top it up, but the insurance is less personal because it's embedded with the product. You don't then tend to have a track record of your insurance history because it's owned by those platforms. So I do think that blockchain technology used in the right way could facilitate a way that just like you have a credit score, you could have a trust score that cross-subsidies all those yeah. platforms because those platforms aren't going to share information freely. But is this a way that you could share a track record of how you've performed on these platforms? And another way that blockchain could could have significant uses in in those background checks. Yep. You know, today, right, if, if I'm a an IC and I want to drive for Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Postmates, Grubhub, and I want to do work for Thumbtack and TaskRabbit and all these different sharing economy platforms, I'm probably subjected to a different background check with each platform. Is there a way through blockchain technology and, and ways of sharing data that you can have a way that you can clarify a background check has happened rather than having six or seven background checks happen that can improve economies of scale and ultimately improve safety and trust by saying, rather than doing seven background checks, I could do one, but at a much higher depth and a much higher quality. So I think some of those things could be, could be utilized. Yeah, it seems like there's, you know, there's space in the industry i mean i don't i didn't even know how this would interplay but i mean the jurisdictions that we were talking about before from a micro mobility standpoint and you know we, we there's this whole process now of 
you know, certificate tracking and, you know, insurance, you know, essentially certificate box checkers in a lot of these different cities. And, you know, they, you send in the certificate of insurance, they look through it. And if there was some sort of ledger process to, to feed that data, to say, I mean, I just, exactly. something yeah. where it's, it's still a transaction. It's an insurance transaction. It's still a transaction, just like, you know, you'd have right. in, in more of the cryptocurrency type use of blockchain. The part is an anonymizing people at the other end of that track, you know, of that transaction. So it's a way for you to see if there's been an, a risk or a loss within that transaction, but still not sharing losses about a specific platform. They obviously yep. do not want to share. And that's kind of where I'm getting at it is a way to look if losses have happened for a certain individual, but not with, without sharing information that the people don't want to share. Yeah. Last question. So uh, obviously there's, Lots of different form factors that are arriving in the industry, whether it's last mile delivery, people like Amazon or the United States Postal Service or FedEx or whatever it might be with yeah. e-bikes. And, you know, we have moped sharing. I saw you riding a Lime the other day in Paris. I mean, we have a lot of these different form factors coming up. Where where do you think the trends are going in the uh, shared mobility? For me, obviously, I'm a big fan of shared. And if, if I talked about mobility, the three words you can't get away from is, is shared, electric, and autonomous. They're, they're the three, right? So, And I think they're phased. You know, we're, we're sharing assets now. That will only increase, in my opinion. I think people have had their, their eyes opened that during a pandemic, do I need to own a car that sits idle on my driveway for, for all this time? If I have a really good supply and I can share a vehicle with someone, I'd do that. Especially yeah. if I didn't have to tax the vehicle, I didn't have to worry about maintenance and I don't have to worry about insurance. As much as I love insurance, I'm not right. a massive fan of buying it. <laughs> so yeah. if, it's, if it's all embedded, I love that service of shared. I think with the ESG statements made by big players and, and most mobility players, we're going to see a huge shift to electric and that promotes shared vehicles, right? The big thing with, with electric is there's only a certain amount of radius I can get. But if I've got a shared network of vehicles, I can either use more than one vehicle or, or I'm not so worried about the charge factor anymore. And micromobility is obviously huge, I think, especially now when you're looking at those multi-modalities, right? If you were doing a five-mile trip on an, on an e-scooter, that's, that's quite a long trip on, on one of yeah. those devices. You know, when you now have you know, the mopeds that, that Revel and Lime, and, and I'm sure others will be doing very soon, in a sharing perspective, that's a much better solution, in my opinion, for a five-mile trip and potentially more. But it's completely eradicating the need for the car within those right. short journeys, right? And so for me, what I see in, in mobility yeah, is very much the environmentally friendly as much as we can. So that shift to electric, that shift to sharing. And then I think the long-term play is, is, is autonomy. Well, Chris Moore, thanks for joining Exapod. No, thanks. Everybody, Chris is the, the head of iBot and the deputy active underwriter at Apollo Syndicate. So thank you very much, Chris. Uh, yeah, been a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. 